So let's do open to Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We have six more weeks left in this book study. And today we're going to cover chapter 6 and 7. We will find two primary topics. One is how to respond when we're treated wrongfully, particularly in regards to lawsuits within the church. And then we're going to look at a collection of truths for singleness and for marriage. That pretty much covers everyone here. So, if you would, let's bow our heads one more time as we approach the Word. Heavenly Father, give us ears to hear and hearts to obey. Lord, give us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Give us a confidence in Your Word and a lack of confidence in our own wisdom, as Matt sang about. Lord, we are so privileged to trade in our foolishness for Your wisdom even to trade in our sin for your son's righteousness. How we rejoice in the hope and the strength of salvation. Lord, minister your truth through your spirit to us once again this day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's begin um, chapter 6, verse 1. Paul says to the Corinthians, Does any one of you, when he has, ca has a case against his neighbor, Dare go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not then competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers? Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits one with another. Paul begins this chapter with a how dare you statement. And he ends this portion of the text with a, you've already lost conclusion. As we've seen throughout the first part of this book, bless you, the Corinthian believers were suffering. They were suffering and hardly even realized it. They were suffering from severe division and arrogance, and jealousy, and worldliness. And these heart issues were manifesting themselves in countless ways, one of which, as we're seeing now, was taking each other to court. Let's make several observations from the text. Number one, this was an ongoing issue in the church. It wasn't just one instance of someone suing another person. This was a continuing problem. Number two, this included frivolous issues. And related to it, number three, they couldn't even handle the smallest issues between themselves, let alone the big ones. And ironically, number four, thinking themselves to be so wise, the reality is that they had no respect for each other's wisdom, not even for their own church leaders. They would rather be judged by a secular non-believing, unbiblical judge and court system than by another believer or even a group of elders in the church. This speaks loudly to their worldly values and their worldly passions. 
Even if there was a wise man to be found in the church, they knew the church probably wouldn't give them what they wanted, so they went to the secular court, the unbeliever. And sadly, that tendency did not end with Corinth. Even today, people leave the church. They walk away from sound biblical teaching and the wisdom of God to find someone else who, te- who will tell them what they want to hear and give them what they want to have. And Paul says all of this was to their shame. He asks, is there not even one wise man among the whole lot of you? Let's step back and look at the big practical question. If you've studied this text, I don't doubt that the question has come to your mind. mind. Is it wrong for a Christian to sue another Christian who has wrongfully treated them? Now, let me just spit it out there. I'm not absolutely certain how this plays out in every scenario. I'll be the first to say that I haven't totally figured it out, which is one of God's ways of keeping me humble and praying when the situation comes and going back to the Word over and over again. It's because none of us has figured it out. However, there is a wealth of wisdom in this text that we can be absolutely certain of on this matter. Remember, when we come across a portion of Scripture that we don't understand, we don't dwell on what we don't understand. Instead, we dwell on and we focus on and we apply what we do understand. And oftentimes, that leads us to greater understanding. Think about the psalmist. He said, your word is like a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You picture it in the nighttime, a little lamp. It gives just enough light for what? The next few steps. And once you've taken them, you see a few more, etc. As we study and look to understand this text, consider five points with me. Number one, the first point that makes it somewhat difficult to interpret this is that there are no other scriptures that unequivocally say you must never sue a Christian who has done you great wrong, no matter what the the circumstance. Now that said, just because there might only be one instance of an exhortation or a truth in Scripture, that doesn't mean we write it off. You know as well as I do that God only needs to say it one time for it to be 100% truth. But again, if there is uncertainty on a certain matter in the Word, we should certainly look for other affirmations in Scripture. And as we're going to see, the Scripture does offer much more light on this topic, even right here in the next few verses. Number two, another point to consider is that Paul clearly supported the role of government in criminal law. Romans 13, verses 3 to 4, he said, For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. And he goes on to say, But if you do what is evil, be afraid, For it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it, speaking of the rulers, for it is a minister of God. We also know that Paul not only supported governmental intervention, he also personally called on it as a Roman citizen when he was in danger of being treated wrongfully. You can see Acts 22 and 25. Another third point that we should consider is the historical and cultural context of this passage. In Corinth, the courts were full of unbelievers. 
they were full of wicked men. It's most likely that the courts at that time in the very early church were 100% unbelievers. In America, we're incredibly blessed to have a clearly biblically-based constitution and judicial system that even to this day includes many believers as judges. You know, as, again, as well as I do, that our court system and our government is far from perfect. But if we lived in the Middle East or China or Africa, I suspect we'd look at the U.S. judicial system and think it was pretty near holy. Corinth was very different 2,000 years ago than America is today. Now that said, don't take me wrong on this, difference in culture does not change biblical truth. And God's Word doesn't change in meaning or intent from century to century. We simply need to take into account the exact situation that Paul was speaking into so that we can further understand and apply truth and principles as they were intended. Another point that David Guzik makes in his commentary is the point on the church's testimony. He says this, The local judges sat in what was known as the Bema seat of the civil magistrate, which was located in the heart of the marketplace. The Bema seat, that is, the judgment seat. Because Greek culture found a good legal battle entertaining, anyone's lawsuit soon became public knowledge. We see here in Corinth, that re- and, and today even, that regardless of how we respond in a certain scenario, we should take into account our Christian testimony. What will my actions tell the world about Christ and my church? Even if I win in a situation, will it come at a great cost to my testimony for Christ and the reputation of God's people? Number five, finally, remember that we're looking at rampant lawsuits in the Corinthian church, as we're going to see in verse 8. It all resembled more of fighting than the protection and integrity of a person. There was something bad wrong in this group of believers. Perhaps some lawsuits are allowed as a means of honest and equitable and necessary justice and righteousness in a land. I can't say with absolute certainty how this all plays out. I'm just being honest with you as I think out loud. But here's what I can say with certainty. Paul has more to say on this subject in the next few verses. Not only to the topic at hand, but to the whole spirit of Christianity. That's what we don't want to miss. Continuing in verse 7. Here's the verse that none of us wants to hear. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? It hurts to hear that, doesn't it? Because we can see that Paul isn't talking about frivolous offenses or trivial lawsuits or having our feelings hurt or or being embarrassed by someone, he's talking about being genuinely wronged and defrauded by another person, particularly by someone in your church even. Let's read the text accurately though. Paul is not necessarily saying you should allow yourself to be wronged and defrauded. Does he? No, he uses the word rather. 
That's a comparison word. He's saying it would be better to be wronged than to do what you're doing. Fighting, attacking, running to the unbeliever for wisdom and judgment. On the contrary, he encourages them to sort it out with believers. That's a very important, for dis- uh, a very important distinction for us to make in this text lest we run off and have wrong application or push a wrong application on fellow believers. Verse 8, he says, On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Again, this is part of the big picture. Paul isn't just addressing law. He's not just addressing lawsuits. He's addressing vengeful and, and fraudulent lawsuits. This was fighting in the church. Either people were sinfully, wrongfully attacking back Or after being attacked, they were just turning to the next person in line and attacking them. This was a vicious, fleshly, selfish cycle at play in the church. There was a strong sense of returning evil for evil and getting even. And not only getting even, but as they say, getting ahead. All for selfish gain and all against their fellow brothers and sisters in the church. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 8 and 9, where the apostle Peter also gives us some excellent Christian wisdom and church ethic. He says, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil, there's the wrong actions, or insult for insult, there's the hurtful words, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. This is another one of those hard-to-hear verses. Instead of attacking back, what what does Peter command? Bless them back. Instead of fighting back with the tongue, bless back with your speech. That is such a God thing. It's so unnatural, but it's so right It is so not what the offender is expecting, but it is so good. We should strive to bless back. And why? Look at what Peter says. Because we've already been called to inherit a blessing. We have an inheritance. This is a huge factor in the life of the believer. We don't live for the possessions and the things and the money we incur during this lifetime. We live for the incredible inheritance to come and the blessings that are already being made available to us. Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 11 and 12, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So he's talking about religious persecution. He says, rejoice and be glad. Why? For great is your reward in heaven. For you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. For whoever whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is the higher standard that God calls us to. He calls us to let go of the things of this world and communicate Him especially to our enemies. And one of the ways that defies Satan and defies the power of sin and defies the selfishness that is so rampant in the world is when we love our enemies and pray and do good. You see, unlike the unbeliever who truly believes that the things of this lifetime are all they're going to get, the believer has another reality, a very strong sense of you can take everything I have, but give me Jesus. You can take it all, but you can't take Jesus. You can take it all, but I still have everything because Jesus is everything to me. I have an inheritance that no man can touch, and it dwarfs the things of this world. That reality, that understanding provides great comfort and peace and perspective to the losses and the wrongdoings that we will incur in this lifetime. And follow me on this. Has it ever occurred to you that blessing an offender might not primarily be for their sake, but for yours? When they take your shirt and you give them your coat as well, that might primarily be for your benefit. This is a heart attitude check that will help you and to me and me to live like sons of our Heavenly Father. Or is our heart so steeped in anger that we can't even bring ourselves to think about doing something kind to that person who has so wronged us? Among other things, this is an attitude check that enables us to be good instruments in God's hands, to be conduits of His loving truth. I'm reminded again that God's ways and His wisdom are so much higher and better than mine. What a nugget of truth to live by that we find from these words of Peter and Paul and Jesus. Indeed, they're all God's Word. When you and I are wronged this week, can we purpose to bless back? When someone lashes out at us with their tongue, can we remember this biblical command to bless back? To help us remember, there are little slips of paper out in the foyer that say, bless back, 1 Peter 3, 9. Will you join me and take one of those, or two or three? And tape them up wherever you'll see them throughout the week. Your bedside, the vehicle, your kitchen, wherever you'll see them often. Reminders to check our heart and to bless back 
so that people can see we are different than this world. We are children of God. You can pick those up on your way out after the service. And, and ushers, if, you, if I could, I didn't mention this before, if one of you could set those out on the uh, credenza table there where the bulletins are so that people will see those. Back to 1 Corinthians, verse 9. And those are in the window, John. Thank you. Back to 1 Corinthians, verse 9. Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. Interesting that he would use that word in this legal context. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Verse 12, here comes another life-guiding principle for us. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Paul just keeps going deeper and deeper into the attitudes of the heart and the reality of God's ways. He says, just because I can doesn't mean I should. I, he says, I will not be controlled by the situation or by my personal desires or by my personal gain, particularly selfishness. He says, I will not be controlled by it. God is my master. So considering everything we've read just in these first several verses, here are seven questions based on the text that help guide our response to being wrongfully, retreat, uh, uh, wrongfully treated. You'll find these questions on the back of your salt starter that's in the bulletin. Number one, have I sought the biblical counsel of fellow believers, people who know and love God and will give me wise counsel? Number two, is this a matter that can and should be settled by believers? For example, have I followed the Matthew 18 protocol for confronting a believer who is sinning or sinning against me? Go to them directly. If they don't listen, take a brother or sister with you. If they still don't listen, take it to the church and let the church go to them. Matthew 18 protocol. Am I willing to let the church help and sort it out? Or is my inclination to go straight to the court, to an outside source, a coworker, a neighbor friend who does not know God or care about his values? What a shame to the church. Number three, how will my response reflect on Christ and the church? Does it glorify my Savior and honor my church? Or will my community look and say, see, the Christians can't get along either. They're no different than the rest of us when it comes down to what really matters, and that is the things of this life. Number four, have I blessed the person who has wrong wronged me? Remember, a big part of this is heart attitude check and trust in God. Number five, am I willing to be wronged and defrauded like Jesus pointed to in the Sermon on the Mount? Or do I always demand justice? Does life always have to be fair? This leads to the next question. Does justice have a way of controlling me? Quote, unquote, justice. Of mastering me, mastering my emotions and my behaviors and my view of situations, etc. Even when I know God wants me to respond in a different way. Number seven, 
Is my heart set on the things of this world? Or is it truly set on the treasures of my heavenly inheritance? Back in verse 10, what did Paul say the unbeliever and the worldly would not inherit? The kingdom of God. Can we even begin to fathom such an inheritance that we get to live in the land of God with all His blessings and provisions and protections? That puts my earthly woes into perspective and gives me the, the freedom to respond how He leads. Regardless of whether there are scenarios where it is permissible and right for a Christian to sue another Christian, we find that this text gives us plenty to live by first before we ever go there. Let's move on to the next portion of the text. Verse 13 to the end of chapter, Paul now goes back to the topic of sexual moral purity. Why did he branch off into lawsuits? This is one of the questions that plagued my mind when I was first reading over this. Why did he go, back, go to lawsuits for the past several verses and now come back to the same talk, topic he was on before? I'm not sure, but that's the way the Holy Spirit put it out there. That's why we're going in this order. And if the Holy Spirit inspired it, then it's there for a reason. Perhaps one reason is that all of this really does tie together. Sin does affect everything. And at the root, it's the same root. Go for the root. Kill all the sins. Verse 13. He says, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Back in Greek culture, just like, hey, the food is for stomach, and the stomach is for food, eat it. The body is mine, give it what it wants. Paul challenged that philosophy with the wisdom of God, and he said the body is not for immorality but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. All the more reason to honor the body that God has given us. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you know do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. We spoke at length last week. <clears throat> at length. <clears throat> at length on this topic of sexual purity. So I'll not dive back into it today. But you'll appreciate this commentary from David Guzik, uh, from David Guzik on this verse. Flee immorality. He's, he writes... Augustine was a Christian who had a lot of trouble with keeping sexually pure. For a long time, it kept him from really following God. He used to pray, God, make me pure, but not just yet. 
But there came a point where he really turned everything over to God. He stopped hanging around with his companions in sexual immorality and stopped going to the neighborhoods where he used to meet them. But once he had to go there on business, and on the street he met an old flame. She was glad to see him and started running to him with arms outstretched, saying, Augustine, where have you been for so long? We have so missed you. Augustine did the only thing he could do. He started running the other way. She called out to him, Augustine, why are you running? It's only me. He looked back while still running and said, I'm running because I'm not me. He was a different man because of Jesus, living a different way. If we have had our lives changed by Jesus, it will show in the desire to flee sexual immorality. End quote. Let's finish reading the chapter, verse 18. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. And what is that price? The blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, glorify God in your body. As we noted last week, it is not our body to do what we want with. And that's just not referring to sexual morality. It is everything we do with these hands and these feet and these eyes and these ears and this mind that God has given us. And Paul says, glorify God in all of it. It belongs to Him. Here's a quote from Spurgeon. Your body was a willing horse when it was in the service of the devil. Let it not be a sluggish hack now that it draws the chariot of Christ. Spurgeon had a way of putting it, didn't he? I came across that also in Guzik's commentary. If you're not familiar with his commentary, I highly recommend it based on, on Mark's recommendation. Well, that's chapter 6. What a chapter, eh? We could stop right there, but I know you didn't drive all the way out here for a fast food 20-minute sermon. Let's look quickly at chapter 7, where Paul continues this teaching on moral purity, and he now applies it to singleness and to marriage. There is so much wisdom, so much protection and blessing and hope in the words that we are about to read. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control, the desires of the body that God has naturally given us. In these first five verses... Paul is simply pointing out two very important marital truths. Number one, the command to marital faithfulness. One man faithful to one woman, and one woman faithful to one man, the Scripture says. Both the husband and the wife are responsible for their own faithfulness. Anything else is immorality and unexcused. And secondly, regarding their physical intimacy, let them not live selfishly 
but for the other person, period. I'm not going to give a marriage seminar right now, especially on this topic with this audience. I'll leave that to Mark and Nancy. But I will say this. There is a wellspring of wisdom here in this one verse that dwarfs volumes of pop psychology on marriage. We must purge and keep purging selfishness from our marriages. Demonstrate selfless love. Outgive each other. Watch what God will do in a marriage when both are living for the pleasure of each other and are not using physical pleasure as a means of manipulation or control or spite. Of course, there could be many other issues that need to be addressed. There is never tolerance for physical abuse. And let us not take Paul's further uh, words further than he intended. He didn't say, give your spouse whatever they want, whenever they want. On the other hand, what did he say? He said, don't deprive. That would be total abstinence, long-term separation. So let's not put words in Paul's mouth. On the other hand, we clearly see that marital faithfulness in every sense, in the body, in the mind, along with kindness and selflessness, and living with your wife in an understanding way and all the other cross-references we find in Scripture, these things go a long way in fostering a harmonious and joyful physical relationship, not to mention the emotional one. But for now, Paul simply and briefly warns couples, stop depriving each other, stop using your physical relationship against each other. An exception would be for the clear purpose of spiritual growth, and even then, it's only when both parties agree. Since that's all that Paul said, that's all that I'm going to say. The Scripture now gives us wisdom for a few more situations. Verse 6, but this I say by way of concession, not of command, yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. Remember, Paul was single. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. This is one of those somewhat tricky texts that is very easy to overcomplicate. Paul simply says, and you let me know afterward if you disagree with me, Paul simply says that he would love for everyone to be a single missionary like him. But he goes on to say that he recognizes that God has not called or gifted everyone to be single missionaries. Quite the opposite. He recognizes that God gifts others in different ways, particularly in marriage and in serving a spouse and in raising a godly heritage. We could all learn a lot from Paul's example right here. Contrary to popular Christian opinion, everyone does not have to be like me. Can I get an amen? amen? Everyone does not have to be like you. That might be nice, like Paul alluded here, but it is not God's reality. Furthermore, we learn from this passage and others like this that whether God calls you, that's, that's a big term, whether He calls you or leads you by His divine will, whether God calls you to be single or to be married, He will equip you. 
He will gift you. He will empower you to fulfill that calling well. This is of tremendous encouragement to those who are single but look forward to the possibility of marriage. Singleness is not second best in God's relational kingdom. Matter of fact, we see from someone as spiritual as the Apostle Paul that he prefers singleness and he prefers it for others. The truth point here is that singleness is specifically a calling, a gifting, an empowering of God, and a single person should not bemoan the place that God has them in life. Likewise, marriage is a calling of God, and the married person should not bemoan the place God has them in life. Oh, how the grass always seems to look greener on the other side. Remember, both our single years and our wedded years are giftings from God. He has called us and He will equip us to glorify Him wherever we are. We're going to see more of this in the verses ahead. Verse 10, here we find general biblical instruction now regarding divorce and remarriage. Verse 10, but to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. He says, let's be clear here. This is no longer my preference for the body of Christ. That the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Plain and simple, a person should not divorce, and if they do, they should remain single. Perhaps God will give opportunity for reconciliation, which would be a magnificent testimony of His victory and His healing and His restoration in some of the most difficult circumstances and relationships in this world. Much more could be said on this. But again, I'll leave that for the senior pastor. So that's all that Paul said. So let's work with what Paul has said. Divorce is not God's way. We know that from Scripture, God hates it. It breaks apart a spiritual, not just a physical, not just a relational. It breaks apart a spiritual covenant relationship that God joined together. Bottom line, divorce is not God's way. Thankfully, grace and mercy and forgiveness do cover the sin of divorce. Should it be a sin on the believer's part? God's grace does cover sin, but that doesn't mean we sin that grace may abound. Enough on that for now. Verse 12. Here we see Paul giving very sensitive and caring advice to believers who are married to an unbeliever. Remember, unlike the ark, Christians rarely join the family of God two by two. Verse 12, but to the rest I say, not the Lord. Let's pause here. But to the rest I say, not the Lord. We have to remember that Paul is telling us there is no biblical command. Christ did not say the words you're about to hear in his lifetime. There's no biblical precedent or command on this yet. Nevertheless, we have to remember that Paul is still speaking with apostolic authority and he is still writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Don't let anyone tell you there are a few words of man in this book and the majority is from God. 
It is all given by inspiration. You understand this, First Timothy. So Paul goes on to say that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? When two unbelievers are married and one becomes a Christian, the thought naturally comes to mind, should I leave my spouse and marry a believer so that we can have a Christian home? Paul, in no under uncertain terms, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, no, do not divorce. Do all you can to remain married and be at peace. Maybe God will use you to lead your spouse to Christ. How we rejoice when we see God work that way and how we pray for those who are still trusting God to work that way. Paul says, don't worry about the kids. Don't worry about the marriage. God has sanctified. He has set them apart. That's the word holy. Both your marriage and your children in a uniquely spiritual way. I will not pretend that I know exactly what that unique spiritual way is. All I know is what the verses say. Are they all Christians because of your faith? No. We know this from the rest of Scripture, Romans 10. Faith comes only by hearing the Word of God and calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and believing in a risen Lord and Savior, not by having a Christian spouse or parent. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying, remain married. God has it under control. Granted, if your unbelieving spouse demands a divorce because of your faith, what does Paul say? Let them go. But again, strive for peace, recognizing that God may use you as an instrument to lead them to faith. This text beautifully teaches and reminds us that the Christian faith really is one of peace and of hope, one of God's sovereignty in the lives of His children. Verse 17, only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each in this manner, let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you were able also to become free, rather do that. For he was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You are bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. 
Paul teaches us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit an awesome pair of Christian principles right here. God can save you right where you are. And secondly, God can use you right where you are. You can imagine back in Paul's time, a slave getting saved and then panicking, wait, how can I live for God in this situation? Or an uncircumcised Gentile thinking, wait, I'm not like the Jews. Or a spouse thinking, wait, my husband's not saved or my wife is not saved. What about my kids? Perhaps you're thinking, how can I live for God with parents like mine? Or how can I live for God in a workplace like this? Or with an unsaved spouse? Paul silences all of the circumstantial and superficial situations and all of their worries, and he says what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. There's a lot in this text that's hard to understand, but there are phrases like that one that are absolutely clear, and that's our responsibility, so let's just do it. Obey God right where you are. Wherever God calls you, verse 17, wherever God assigns you, that's where you want to be. Obey Him, follow Him, live for Him right where you are. If He moves you to another place in life at some point, if He changes your assignment, obey Him and serve Him right there as well. Don't you love the simplicity of Scripture? Wherever you are, keep the commandments of God. Verse 25, now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I think then that this is good in view of the present distress. If you study this, you understand that's a very important phrase. In view of the present distress, these were times of severe persecution and trial in the church. Remember, Paul had already gone about murdering people before his conversion. He was there to imprison church leaders, if not have them killed. So he says, in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. It's like Paul is saying, even if you go against all common sense here, even if you don't take my advice, even if you marry against the odds and in light of the persecution and increased stresses that this will certainly bring upon you, even if you marry, you have not sinned. He goes on to say, yet such will have trouble in this life and I am trying to spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be free from concern. The early believers had a lot of concerns. He says, one who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord." That last phrase 
is essential for understanding this whole text. Whether you're married or single, whether you're slave or free, do what is appropriate for wherever God has you right now. Fulfill your calling. Don't get distracted. God can use you where you're at. Be fully devoted to Him. Undistracted devotion. Again, this applies to both single and married people as we can see at the end of the text. He is calling everyone to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Don't be distracted if you're married. Don't worry about those issues. Obey the commands of God. If you're single, don't be distracted. Don't worry about all the possible scenarios. Obey the commands of God. Verse 36. But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she is past her youth meaning if she's old enough to be married. And if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. wishes. He does not sin. Let her marry. This passage is a little difficult to interpret. Some theologians believe virgin or virgin daughter, as it's used in some translations, is referring to a betrothed young woman. The passage would be saying that it's okay for the man and her to go ahead and be married, even in light of the present distresses. Now, other theologians believe that it's referring to a father who has vowed not to let his daughter marry in light of the present distresses. And Paul is saying that she should be released from his vow if she so desires. My sense is that it's the prior, but regardless, The point is very clear in this verse and in the next, and that is, it's okay for them to get married. That's the point. Verse 37, but he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will and has decided this in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. So then both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. Again, in light of the present distresses, There's no argument in that. Verse 39, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. So as as long as he is a believer. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. If we step back, we see that Paul again, here and back in verse 28, is setting an amazing example for us, particularly as church leaders and as parents. The lesson is this. There may be a better way, but we can't always force it on fellow Christians or on our children or on those who might be under our care. If they aren't sinning, there are times it's okay to let them choose for themselves. That's a hard one to swallow, especially if you're a mother or father, especially for me as a dad with my own young children. I know that daddy really does know better most of the time. I have been proven wrong by my kids twice already. But here's the lesson. Here's the lesson I need to learn. There may be times specifically when it's a practical wisdom issue, not a sin issue, there may be times where it's good and healthy and right for me to let them choose and learn for themselves. 
it's okay, Paul is saying. He is not saying to give our kids free reign, but he is demonstrating the difference between exercising authority over sin issues and exercising it or withholding it when it comes to practical wisdom issues. There is room for difference of opinion and action. God give us wisdom in this. And we thought that the Bible only offered super spiritual, high-level theology. It hardly gets more down to earth than what Paul is demonstrating for us right here in the context of marriage and our children. As you've seen, Paul has covered a little of this and a little of that in both of these two chapters. He's hopped from one topic to the next, and he's addressed very real-life issues. I trust that we are all walking away from this place today with a little more of the wisdom of God for our lives. But not only that, but I pray that we are also walking away with more respect and appreciation and humility toward the wisdom of God in His amazing Word. We are so privileged to not have to navigate this life on our own. We are so privileged to have this book in our hands so freely as we do. May we not waste it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the wisdom of God. You give it to us right where we need it most. In the marriages, in singleness, in relationships, in our interaction with children, especially as they grow older and become of age and prepare to leave the nest, to get married, to be in families, lives of their own. God, continue to grant us wisdom in these matters. In a sense, I thank you that you have not immediately given us every answer, lest we think to ourselves we have no need to go back to the Word, lest we think to ourselves that we have no need to pray, lest we think that we have no need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit in each circumstance. Thank you, Lord, that your word is there and that you do continue to give us wisdom for this life. How I pray, Lord, that if there is one here who cannot call you their heavenly Father, if they do not understand the gospel and the message of Christ crucified, and risen again for them. I pray that they would this day would open the word, beginning perhaps in the book of John, and read and understand why we have such a great hope, why we have such freedom in Christ, why we have such joy. And Lord, for those of us who do know you as our personal Savior, I pray that we would live in the wisdom of God, in the power of God, aligning ourselves with the assignment you have given us so that we might have a testimony, whether it be in trial or in blessing, that we might have a testimony to the lost where they look at us and they see our good works, as the Scripture says, and give God glory. We love you. We love your word. Grant us the grace to obey it this day more than yesterday. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.